This morning, we begin a new sermon series for the rest of the season of Lent, the Messiah Dialogues. It just so happens that the readings prescribed for Lent all feature a conversation that somebody has with Jesus in a way that is transforming and powerful and I hope engages us and invites us into the conversation, into the dialogue as well. Now, the title of this first message is Jesus Spills the Tea. And I just have to pause right here and acknowledge that this whole thing about spilling the tea was actually invented by a drag queen, Lady Chablis. And uh, in, in this time when drag queens need our love and support and affirmation, as well as trans folk, particularly trans children, I just wanted to lift up uh, that phrase and give credit where credit is due. Jesus spills the tea. Once there was a guy sitting on the beach, looking out at the ocean, contemplating eternity. And in that moment, the guy felt so connected to creation and to the Creator that he was moved to ask, Holy One, what is a million years to you? And, and to his surprise, he heard a voice saying to him, a million years to you is just like a second to me. It's really no time at all. Well, he was amazed, and he thought, well, maybe I should ask another question. So he asked, Lord, what is a million dollars to you? And the response came, well, a million dollars to you, it's really just like a penny to me. It's nothing at all. And so then he asked, God, can I have a million dollars? And the voice came back, sure, just give me a second. <laughs> joke takes a second, actually. It's not a great joke, frankly. It's, uh, and and the, risk, <laughs> the risk of any joke featuring God like that is that it, it can overly humanize God, right? Make God too anthropomorphic, too much like us, or at worst, make God into a kind of joke. As you may be aware, atheism is on the rise in our country, in, in the world, in Europe, various places, and I actually think that's fascinating. I am fascinated by the arguments of atheists relative to the arguments of believers, and when I'm on social media, social media has figured out that that is what I enjoy listening to, and now I just get nothing but atheists and believers making their arguments and counter-arguments about why, why their position is the most credible or believable to believe or not to believe, and, so, and then there are a few people in the middle. I think the whole conversation, the whole dialogue is fascinating. However, there actually isn't much dialogue going on. It's mostly this person saying what they think and this person saying what they think. There isn't a whole lot of conversation happening. And second, both sides of this conversation, of this dialogue, are missing, in my humble opinion, the most important and fundamental question on the table. And that question is, what do we mean by God? 
That's the basic question that no one is asking on either side of this debate or this conversation. The word God gets thrown around in these conversations and perhaps by us as well, assuming that we all mean the same thing and we all exactly agree on that definition. And the fact is there isn't one and we don't. The first thing to ask somebody who says, I believe in God is tell me about the God you believe in. And the first question to ask somebody who says, oh, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any of that, is tell me about the God you don't believe in. We need to start with that definition. Now, let's just step back from the God question for a second and look at it a little bit differently. Suppose I was to say to you, I don't believe in art. I don't believe in, I don't believe art actually exists. You might say to me, how can you say that? Look at this painting right here. Look at this dance performance. Listen to this beautiful piece of music. And I might say, well, that painting, that's just pigment. That's just colors on a canvas. And that dance movement, that's just people moving around. And, and that music is just vibrations hitting my eardrums. There's nothing you can define to say exactly. That proves the existence of some objective reality called art. But... If you said to me, well, maybe we ought to find a, like a common ground definition for what art is. Art is, let's see, maybe art is the experience of meaning or feelings generated individually or collectively in response to some form of human expression. Then I might say, oh, that's what you mean by art. Okay, yeah, I guess I have an understanding and experience and appreciation for art after all. So maybe we ought to come to some very basic common definition of God or divine presence or divinity or sacred reality, if that's even possible. And I'm just going to throw out one. It could be that we might describe God, a basic definition is that which is our ultimate concern, our highest aspiration. The greatest good beyond which no other good can be conceived. That might be one way to get some common definition of the word God, even if the word God is not one that you particularly respond to. It's possible that most of us, regardless of our theological allegiances, can articulate what is our highest aspiration, what is a good beyond which no other good can be conceived, which means, of course, that everyone has some form of God in their life. Their highest aspiration, it could be money, it could be security, it could be pleasure, it could be power, it could be control, it could be art, it could be transcendent, sacred reality, any of those things could be one's higher power, one's greatest aspiration. So the real question is not, do you believe in God, does God exist because everyone has a God or several? The real question is, what is your highest ideal? What would you find worthy of giving your heart and life to? And if we can articulate that, we have just defined and framed our God or our highest reality. Okay, now. At this point, somebody might want to stop me and say, hey, hold on, Laney. Like, 
articulating my highest aspiration, that's a far cry from affirming belief in some being, some supernatural grand being out there, you know, some guy in the sky. That, those things are very different. Well, maybe, but whoever said God was some guy in the sky? Where do we get this idea that God is a being anyway? Maybe God is not a being. Maybe God is being. Sometimes when we try to get our heads around and hearts around this idea of sacred presence, sacred reality, we might need to let go of some of our inherited ideas and images and even some of the cartoons that we have about God and faith. Once there was a professor who came to a Zen teacher, Zen master and Zen teacher, and he came to this Zen teacher having a lot of ideas already about Zen. In fact, this professor was a professor of religion. And so he came to her, this Zen teacher, and started telling her everything that he already knew about Zen. Meanwhile, the Zen teacher is sitting there making uh, tea, in a very ceremonial way, putting it all together as the professor is uh, sharing all of his knowledge. Meanwhile, the Zen teacher is pouring the tea into the cup and pouring, and pouring, and pouring. The cup is just overflowing all over the, the table, onto the floor, even onto our professor. And finally, the professor's like, hey, are you okay? Can, can't you see that this cup is really full? In fact, it's overflowing. And the Zen teacher said, you are like this cup. You're so full of your own ideas and assumptions. How am I supposed to teach you anything? First, you need to empty your cup. Emptying one's cup of fixed ideas about God is exactly what's going on in this conversation between Professor Nicodemus and Zen Master Rabbi Jesus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, uh, maybe because that's when Jesus' calendar was, was free, you know, all of his daily meetings and appointments were over. Or maybe Nicodemus was, like, trying to protect his reputation by coming in the dark of night. You know, maybe he was concerned about being seen in the light of day with this simple country preacher. I mean, what would, the, the neighbors might talk if he's see, treating this preacher like an equal or, or even as a superior, asking questions and learning from him. And Nicodemus not only comes by night, he's a bit in the dark himself. He comes asking, sort of buttering Jesus up with this grand statement saying, Jesus, we know you are a teacher who comes from God because no one could do all the things that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus just jumps in, stops him right there, interrupts, and says what I think could basically be summarized as, dude, you need to empty your cup. You need a fresh start. You need, if you're going to understand this stuff, you need a clean slate. You need a totally new beginning. You need to be born a second time. And Nicodemus, Professor Nicodemus, in, a, in an ongoing exercise of really not getting it, says, born a second time? Do you expect me to crawl back into my mother's womb at this age and be born a second? That sounds pretty awkward, not to mention really uncomfortable for my mother. 
And you can see Jesus just like doing one of these, being like, oh, this guy, like, you know, how? And he continues to give all these wonderful uh, images, comparing the spirit to water and to wind and to parenting and to generosity, hoping that maybe one of these will land for Nicodemus, basically saying, look, Nick, you've got to totally rewire your brain and how you imagine God and the spirit working. And it's left open in the text as to whether or not Nicodemus actually gets it. Although we find out a little later in the gospel that maybe he came around. Now, as I think about it, this text is kind of an awkward way to start Women's History Month, which is where we find ourselves right now. Two dudes having a kind of locker room conversation chatting casually about birthing as if they have any idea about that. Well, this might be John, the gospel writer's version of the manger scene. This could be the birth story in the gospel of John. There is no birth story in the beginning of his gospel. That's, that's only in Matthew. We find that in Luke. But in John, there's no angels and shepherds, there's no manger scene, there's no pregnant Mary at all, nothing. Now, it happens at night, but there's no star overhead. And instead of a pregnant virgin, we have Nicodemus, who we hope is going to be filled with and give birth to the Spirit in his life. And not only Nicodemus, this, of course, is directed far beyond Nicodemus. It's directed at you and to me. This birth story is about being born into the expansive, equitable family of God, free of fixed hierarchical roles, where we empty our cup of fixed ideas about God and one another, where we take a new identity as God's children, as spiritual beings. In Jesus' day, identity was basically fixed and determined by what family you were born into, and, and more than that, by what caste you were born into. That decided, for the most part, your identity. We like to think that's basically all changed, and, and it has changed some, but isn't it true that our identity, our social location is still determined to a large degree by our situation of our birth and the range of choices and resources available to us. Being born again, being born anew, as Jesus is talking about, means turning all of that on its head and blowing it wide open. Now, it's possible, don't want to make assumptions about you, but it's possible you've heard this born again thing used in other ways, maybe in ways used to express and enforce an exclusivist view of Jesus used as a kind of litmus test, which I'm fairly sure, certain Jesus would reject and interrogate and spill the tea on that too. Ultimately, I don't think really it's us who are born again. I think what's happening in this text is introducing us to the fact that the Spirit is what's born again and again and again in the 
poor manger of our heart and being. Sarah Dillon Brewer once said that being born again is dislocation from a network of relationships that perpetuates injustice, death, and alienation so that we can be knit into a network of relationships that brings healing, reconciliation, and abundant life rooted in the eternal. Being born again is being detached from the matrix of domination and destruction. Being born again is not only believing that another world is possible, but learning to live into it and lean into it right now. What would that mean for you? What would it mean for you to be born a second time? What in you needs to be emptied from your cup or from your spiritual womb and your manger so that your heart is empty and unobstructed and ready? I have no idea what that is for you. But Lent is the perfect time to ask. One of the practices of Lent often is giving something up, right? Or taking something on so that we can be more prepared, more ready, more open for the Spirit to be born in us. Live into our true identity as God's children, as spiritual people. Even letting go of some of our constricting ideas about God. Amen? Ashe, namaste.